0: Thanks for listening to the City Collective podcast. We hope that this message from Pastor Jason Charles and the City Collective team challenges and inspires you. Enjoy. Good morning, City Collective. Thanks for joining us for Church Online. I hope you're doing well and you're staying safe, happy, long weekend i know it might feel a little bit different all the days are kind of blurring together at least that's the way it's felt for us but i hope that you're still taking the opportunity to connect with some people that you love and are enjoying some of the beautiful weather that we have been blessed with over the last little while Uh, If this is your first time joining us, my name is Jason, and I get the privilege of being the lead pastor here at City Collective. I hope that you've found some unique ways to connect already and uh, that the rest of the morning is a blessing to you in your home. We so believe that God meets us where we're at and in the spaces that we occupy this morning, that the presence of God can be exactly where we are. Now, last week was Mother's Day, and we had our creative team put together this wonderful video for us to celebrate all the moms and those parenting within our community. If you missed that, you can find that on our Facebook page or on our YouTube page. It's just a wonderful piece of creativity put together by our team, and I hope it blesses you like it blessed me. Now, uh, this week, we are in part five of our walk through the book of Jonah. Last week we were at the beginning of chapter 3 and we were looking at the life of Jonah and particularly this part of the story of second chance struggles. And this story is often presented as, as a children's narrative, but it's incredibly adult in its themes and its ideas. And if it's been an eye-opening, different expression for you, could you do me a favor? Could you toss a hand, toss a hand up in the comments, uh, a little emoji man, and let us know that this is something that has caused you to pause and to think as we have journeyed through the story of Jonah together. Because last week we saw the second chance struggles that Jonah was having and I know that that's something that I was resonating with and I hope it was for you as well. Because from the from the very beginning, from the call at the very beginning to uh, the ship in the storm, to the belly of a fish, to being vomited up on the shore and then begrudgingly it seems making his way to the city of Nineveh, we have seen Jonah go on this incredible fantasy-like adventure. We saw last week that though so much is happening and changing around Jonah and shaping the world around Jonah, Jonah himself is still struggling with this idea of the second chance that he's being given by God. And this story reveals the truth that God gives second chances based on who God is, not based on who we are. And that the worst person you can imagine is worthy of God's grace. So who are we to stop that? And Jonah, he he makes his way to Nineveh and he delivers this C plus sermon. That's the language we were using last week. Five Hebrew words with no real gravitas or guidance for the people of Nineveh. But yet God still uses it. And the people of Nineveh immediately respond. Because the love of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness of God is so captivating that even the bare minimum of obedience prompts and unlocks the potential of repentance. So we don't need perfect words to be obedient. We just need humility. And when we have that humility, we start to realize that we get to be the demonstration of God's love in the world. Because God just doesn't simply want empty words or nice thoughts, he wants us to start living like we have been given a second chance, to start being a second chance people. And this is where we find ourselves today. Jonah's given his five word sermon, the people of Nineveh have responded, now we find ourselves in Jonah chapter three, verse six. So today we're looking at three things, Game of Thrones, grieving goats, and online shopping. Here's looking at you, Adrian. Let's pray together as we get started. Father, thank you for your grace and how it meets us in the places that we are. For the stories that we've heard this week of people grieving and needing comfort, I pray that you would just meet them where they're at. Um, For families that are experiencing heartache and, and brokenness, I just pray that there's healing that comes into it. I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to discover you in the story of Jonah today. May your kingdom come, may your will be done. In your name we pray, amen. let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Thank you to the Cook family for our How You Doin' segment, and to Kaylin, Carlin, and Caitlin for leading us in our scripture reading this morning. Uh, Shout out to our frontline healthcare workers. They're doing such amazing work and we're so appreciative of you. We love you. There's a post from our uh, team on Instagram and a word from Caitlin if you wanna check that out this week, but just know that we love you and we appreciate you. Now, this Sunday, we are in the back half of Jonah chapter three. The odd nature of this story really does continue because this people that is known for its brutality responds in this way that is unexpected. And, and the king, he doesn't even hear about it till the people have responded. See, the, the people are the first to respond and they've acted of their own accord. And not just a few of them, but what's really interesting, it says from the greatest to the least. And this is an impressive feat in of, of itself, because you and I have seen, even in the current state that we find our culture in, that a crisis can be incredibly polarizing instead of unifying. And it's so rare that unity, especially across spectrums that define greatest to least, is a uh, Possibility, These, these spectrums of, of power, of money, of vocation, of family status, these great dividers which we can normally see are simply cast aside in a call to fast and repent and to put on sackcloth and suddenly everyone is playing on the same playing field. And then word makes its way to the king. And I almost picture it like this, that the king is making his way to the throne room on Monday morning. He's had a great weekend to himself. He tried to recharge and get away. And he sees that there are people all across the city wearing the same thing, and he's thinking to himself that I just missed miss National Sackcloth Day because it's national day for everything. And he makes his way to the throne room and he sees that all his advisors and all the people in the throne room are also wearing the sackcloth that he had seen on his way. And he's thinking to himself, how did we get here? What's going on? I'm so confused. And his response is significant. But before we jump into that, let me ask you a question. How do you respond in a crisis? Carefully, quickly, collaboratively, independently? Are you more reflective? Are you more contemplative? Are are you frozen by a moment of crisis? What's your response in crisis? And all of our responses are very varied across age group, uh, experience, what the scenario is, what are the things at are disposal, it can really be different. I know for myself that when I think about a moment of, of quote-unquote crisis that I had in elementary school, I, I had a Recessed that a bully came over and I don't even really remember what he wanted or what the issue was But I know that he wanted to fight me after school And so I'm making my way back to class and I am most definitely not and have never been a fighter It is not really within my persona and I'm thinking to myself What am I gonna do about this bigger kid than me? I am going to get the Tar be out of me. And so I make my way into the classroom and I start talking to some friends and I have this brilliant idea that I'm going to invite everyone to come play grounders on the playground right after school. And we're all going to do it together and maybe that will help me out. And so I start letting everybody know, hey, grounders after school, grounders after school, grounders after school. Anyways, we make it our way to the playground after school and we're all playing together and I see the bully coming from across the field and he's got this look in his eye and I'm going to say to myself, we got to have a look in our eyes. And so I tell my buddies, they have no idea what's going on. And I ask them, hey, can you just turn with me? And can we just look at this guy and just give him the stink eye? And we all turned and we looked and we looked and we looked and eventually he turned and went away. I've never played that game so hard, how pumped up and excited I was. I-, I knew that I had averted a crisis, that there was a moment of collaboration and unity that had got me out of that crisis. And I would like to say that that moment taught me something, that I should always have that kind of response in crisis. But I have had many moments in my life where crisis has actually led me to have more of an independent or isolated response that has not gone as particularly well but we do see that the people of Nineveh they don't respond in the way that we have expected them to and they this shared crisis when they receive this communal notice of calamity sparks an entire city to respond quickly and a king to respond even more dramatically so and the Bible says that he arose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. And him rising from his throne is so significant to me. Now, some of you might have heard of this show that was this cultural phenomenon a couple years ago, and it's called Game of Thrones, and it was something that kind of overtook all of our imaginations on a global scale. Dragons and blue-eyed zombies, flaming swords, an epic story of fantasy that truly captured everyone. And it's about all these different smaller kingdoms vying for the throne of the greater one, to rule over the rest, to claim power, to claim what so many believe in the story is rightfully theirs. And the show is in, in itself, it's a a turn of events that happen one after another and of how far people are willing to go to take and to protect the throne. This is talked about specifically in the second book for George R R Martin. He says this, that power resides only where men believe it resides. And I find this incredibly insightful. Because that physical throne, that sword of thrones in the story sits as the seat of power because of how it is perceived by those vying for it. That whomever sits on the throne is the ruler of the kingdom. And this is what a throne in general often represents, a moment, a place of power. And so if we take that understanding and we see what happens for the king of Nineveh and we see the king rising from his throne, this carries incredible gravitas and sheds light on how important the king believes the situation to be. Because the king, he removes his royal robes, he covers himself with sackcloth, and he sits in the dust, and then he calls his people to respond in an even more dramatic way than they already were. He says to not just fast from food, but from drink as well, and to cover your livestock in sackcloth also. The king is pushing the people to elevate their response, and this usage of power is the least likely response you would have expected as a listener in this story. And the irony of it is that the use of authority by this pagan king to draw people into repentance is the exact opposite of the manner in which Jonah used his power as a prophet of God. Plato says that the measure of a man is what he does with power. And I was, as I was reading this story and reflecting upon this idea of power, I was confronted with this question: What do I do with the power I have? And maybe you're saying to yourself, "Well, that doesn't really uh, have anything to do with me. I don't have any power in my life." But I would disagree. Because you and I are made in the image of God, an all-powerful God who has imbued humanity with the call to rule over creation. We see this in Genesis 1, verse 28. And he has given us the power to to speak life into situations. We see this in Proverbs 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. BG talks about that specifically on Wednesday. If you want to backtrap and check out our morning devotion. In Second Timothy one verse seven, it says, "For God has given us a spirit not of." fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Psalm 68 verse 35 says that awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. So you are given power. You have power. Power is authority. Power is influence. Power is impact. Power is control. And it might not be a word that you use very often but it is a characteristic that you no doubt wield because power is a two-edged sword and we see that in proverbs eighteen twenty-one that death and life are in the power of the tongue but i would say that death and life are in also in the power of our our actions our of our decisions of our interactions of our relationships of our commitments and the power of our time the power of our questions so often I would say that our inability to see the power that has been given to us in our relationship with God drives us to play the game of thrones that we see in a world around us, where we are constantly vying for areas around us where we believe a true authority and power lie. And we do so at the cost of those we love, at the cost of relationships, at the cost of our integrity. So the question is, how do you use your power? And this is the title of our sermon this morning, uh, With Great Power, because it's this famous line, of course, from Uncle Ben, that with great power comes great responsibility. Perhaps in the first step of learning how to be responsible for the power that we have been given is very simply that we need to recognize it. Because you can't steward well gifts that you are unaware of being in possession of. Do you know that your words carry weight? Do you know that your actions have impact? Do you know that your time has power? Do you know the ways in which you can live your life to the fullest to impact the world around you with death or with life because of the power within you given by God? And if you do, are you using the power that has been gifted to you by an all-powerful God to bring the kingdom of God to this world, one that is founded upon hope and of faith and of love to be a church that cries out, your kingdom come, your will be done, that when someone sits upon a throne, they are building the kingdom around them. And so for so many of us, we need to abdicate the thrones that we sit on in our lives, that we need to give up the control that we are carrying because we're building a kingdom for ourselves. When the call upon our lives as followers of Jesus, as people that have greater potential than we can even ever see, that we are called to build the kingdom of God, that when Jesus teaches us to pray, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we would be a people that would cry out in the same manner, that your kingdom come, your will be done here on in Langley, in Surrey, in White Rock, in Pitt Meadows, in Calgary, in Vancouver, wherever you're watching from this morning, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven but we need to get off of our thrones that we're sitting on because we're just building those kingdoms for ourselves. And the call of Jesus is that we need to lose our life, lose our pride, lose our power in order to find it. We need to let go of our power to find true power in Christ. Ephesians 3 verse 16 says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The true power that you and I need comes when you give up the power that you have been pursuing in your own strength. And this moment of repentance from the king that goes down to the very least where thrones are stepped off of throughout the entire city is a holistic decision to point to God and say that we've got it wrong and we need your help. The king is clear and he specifies that we need to move from this path of evil and this way of violence and we need to cry out with God with all of our strength with all earnestness, and that there's to stop living in such a way, and not to stop actions for the parents' sake, but because there is a better way. And the king, like I mentioned, he goes as far as to say that your livestock need to be covered in sackcloth as well. And, and if we pause for a moment, this is meant to be comical. And in many ways, I picture it as grieving goats because sackcloths that they're wearing would have often been made up of this coarse material of goat hair, in fact, and this rough, coarse material made up of goat hair being put on a goat in an act of repentance is most definitely made to make you laugh. The animals had no concept of what was occurring and could not mourn the situation, but the point is actually both sorrowful and satirical because this isn't about simply giving up Part of their lives. This is a call that repentance is giving all that we are. That when we give all that we are, we are met with this unrelenting grace in every situation before us. And just like it was for the pagan sailors in chapter 1, belief is redefined by the Ninevites as more than a mental exercise, but actually a physical expression. And don't get me wrong, the people of Nineveh, their repentance was not perfect. The Language that's used in the Hebrew doesn't actually specifically identify Yahweh in their moments of repentance. They have just simply encountered the presence of God in the most bare minimum of sermons that they don't even know every detail of it, but yet their hearts are now open in a way that no one would have expected. And God works with the bare minimum in this moment, and though that their repentance was not perfect, we see God work with it. Because even when repentance isn't perfect, we can have confidence that God's grace and mercy is. And when our lives encounter this kind of grace that pursues us in the most unexpected and dramatic of ways, when our lives have this encounter with forgiveness that we so desperately need, we won't just raise our hand on a Sunday and say nice words, but we actually live a transformative life. Too many people think that repenting is just about feeling horrible. And sure, you can have that feeling that comes in these moments of repentance, but that is not the purpose of it. The purpose of repentance is not about what we feel. Rather, it is owning up to our own injustices and failures to love and starting all over by living justly and lovingly. John Ortberg, he talks about this idea and he says, low self-esteem causes me to believe that I have so little worth that my response does not matter. With repentance, however, I understand that being worth so much to God is why my my response is so important. And for many that retell the story of Jonah for for kids, this is kind of where the story ends. At the end of chapter 3, that's where the children's book will often find its conclusion. And it keeps it PG because on the other side of chapter three, on the other side of God relenting, we find Jonah fuming. Our guy Jonah is angry. And he says, why didn't you just let me stay home? And that's the exact opposite of kind of what we all want right now. We want to be outside. And he says, this is why I ran from you. He says, I knew that you would forgive them. I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And then in a most Shakespearean dramatic manner, he says, I only wish to die. Because suddenly the grace of God that has been pursuing him all along, the forgiveness that he has consistently received has been shown to another and that isn't convenient for him. And I would say convenience is something that all of us are struggling with. That we all kind of pursue convenience believing that comfort and convenience are equating with success. This could feel this way with online shopping. I know in our household when we talked about stereotypes during the quarantine, Adriana identified herself as the online shopper and I would say that is 100% true. Now when a package arrives and Adriana opens up, opens that package, it's like Christmas morning. There's so much excitement, but I don't think it's particularly the package that gets Adriana excited as much as the efficiency and the convenience of online shopping and I thought I would therefore apply it to grocery shopping and we talked about it and unfortunately Adriana's experience with online shopping and online grocery shopping didn't have the same level of convenience because she ordered online her groceries and they didn't get all the pieces in place. They didn't re- replace, uh, provide a proper substitute for something that was missing, and they didn't really pick great produce, and that was it, they're done. No longer because that created more issues than convenience, and therefore, since it's not convenient, it shouldn't be done. And I think that's kind of how we live our lives as well. That when we find the most convenient thing, we lean into it, but when it stops being convenient, we toss it to the side. We, we all want a God. Who is gracious and compassionate to us. But we rarely want a God who is full of grace and compassion for those who hurt us. Because let's be clear, Jonah is not the villain in the story, Jonah is the conscience. He's talking to to you and I, the, the, the readers, and he's asking us, how would you react in this moment of repentance? How would you react in the moment of your It's asking you and I, the readers, that 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 moment of hurt you have been harboring, how is that bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness shaping your interaction? Because the incredible irony of this moment is that God turning from his anger sparks Jonah's fury. God is against violence, and yet Jonah wants revenge. And this declaration of anger reveals how broken Jonah is. He's not even making a logical argument before God because Jonah accuses God of acting in a way that he knows God to be. The unchanging nature of God is the only expected thing in this unexpected story. And this truth is one we can hold on for our lives that when we go through storms, when there is change, when there is brokenness, we can hold on to the truth that our God is unchanging. James 1 verse 17 says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Jonah's heart has been unquestionably questionable the whole way. And it's clear now that the forgiveness, unforgiveness that is driving him is pushing him in a direction completely opposite from God. And now it's boiling over into this feeling of anger, one that all of us have felt when we feel like we have been wronged and not gotten the resolution that we desire. But anger can be a dangerous thing. Frederick Buechner, he says this, he says that anger is to like lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past. To roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come. To savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, anger is a fe- feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Anger blinds us from seeing the death we are slowly driving ourselves toward, despite all the ways that God is trying to show us life. But we are given this invitation to relinquish power we're holding and find true power in, in Christ. And to let people know that you might fall into all these different areas of struggle but God's grace is constantly in pursuit that God will go to the ends of the earth to give you the grace that he has already freely shown to you and to me and he just wants us to take that and have it upon our lives to have it to be in the very center of all we do because grace is more than being lucky to be on God's side. Grace is God's goodness showered on people who have failed. Grace is God's love on those who think they are unlovable. Grace is God knowing who we are designed to be. Grace is God believing in us when we are giving up. And there's even more to grace because grace is a person and grace is power. Grace is God unleashing his transformative imagination on our lives. Grace realigns and reroutes people and communities. Grace turns your worst enemy into your best friend. Grace takes people as they are and makes them what they can be. Grace empowers, grace forgives, grace frees, and grace transforms. And this morning, grace is for you. So this morning as we pray, I would invite you, as we close our service, would you bring to your mind one of those areas, any of the areas that you feel you need to just give to God. And I just want you to say oh so simply this prayer. God, would you meet me where I am? I will trust him to do so. Let's pray to you. Father, thank you for your goodness. How you provide healing and hope in the most dark of places. I pray that we just would step forward with boldness in this next season knowing that you would meet us where we're at. For those who need comfort and peace this morning, I pray that they find that. For those who need joy and and laughter, I pray that they would find that. I pray that as we look upon the areas of power in our lives, the areas of control and the areas of hurt, that you would just give us eyes to see how your grace is transforming our lives and inviting us to something completely new. That these just aren't good words for a good idea, but they are transforming paths for us to walk down and discover you. I pray that you would just meet us in our homes this morning. Thank you for what you're doing in our community and beyond. To you we give thanks. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the City Collective Podcast. We hope you enjoyed that message. Please subscribe to stay up to date with every weekly message. For more information on City Collective, please visit www.citycollective.com. Or if you're in the greater Vancouver area, come visit us for Sunday. You can find more about our church and how you can get involved with what God is doing in the Lower Mainland. Have a great day.